last couple weeks, I don't know about you guys, I really uh, had a great time just kind of refocusing and being kind of um, reflective. I, I intentionally was very reflective in terms of just thinking of the last days of Jesus' life, his crucifixion, uh, and then his resurrection, and of course then the life that we have in that. Uh, I I really enjoyed uh, our services, Palm Sunday, and then especially our Good Friday service and last Sunday Easter. If you were not here for those, uh, I, I will say you missed out. Uh, I, I felt like both uh, Sunday and Friday were just wonderful times. Friday, very contemplative, uh, a little heavy at times. Um, you know, I uh, we we had it was if you've ever done Stations of the Cross, we had different stations around the room. You could kind of move around and sort of uh, take time to consider. And I at one point was somewhere kneeling down, and. There's a big cross in the middle, and people were hammering. And I had my eyes closed. I was praying, and all of a sudden, I heard that hammering. And it, I don't know. It just kind of hit me. Something just, you know, whew. And it really was a, a tremendous opportunity to just think of the sacrifice Jesus made. And I really uh, enjoyed that. The whole weekend for me was kind of cathartic. You kind of go from Friday, and then Sunday is this celebration. He's alive. He's risen. So I just share that to say it was great. It was a wonderful reflective time, and I hope you guys uh, enjoyed those services as much as I did. If you weren't here, I encourage you in the uh, years ahead to, to try to make those, because it, was, uh, it really was a very special time, and kind of renewed my faith, and renewed my heart and, and, and for some things of, of God. So tonight, I want to do this. I, I started before Palm Sunday, so it was whatever that is, three weeks ago, three Sundays ago now. I started a series on politics. And I want to pick that up again tonight. Of course, uh, I think everyone is aware it's an election year, right? You know that? Everybody knew that? If you don't know that, you live in a cave. Um, and, and, and here's the thing. We're coming into that season right now. It's about to begin where the whole uh, political machine just kind of ramps up. And it's everywhere you go. And it's... It, you just you, you're just bombarded with these political messages, and it's it just if you're like me, and I think I think most of us would agree, you just get so tired of it all. You go, ah, please make it go away, make it stop, make it stop. And so uh, I was I was chuckling to myself, thinking you may be wondering why, in the midst of all that, would I choose to teach about politics? Uh, you, you think well, just please anything but that. Uh, but but here's the thing: this is why, and this is why now. And, and, and this is something that I'm uh, pretty passionate about myself, and especially right now I'm really thinking a lot about the reason that I decided to speak on politics. And I, and I don't think in the years of this church I've never specifically focused on, on politics before uh, that I can recall. I think there is a lot of confusion and some misunderstanding about what it, what it means to be a Christian in the midst of all that. As a, you know, a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus, whatever you want to call yourself, as somebody who is really 
I'm trying to live my life out for God. I'm trying to, to live my life in Him and for Him and with Him. I'm trying to do the right things in my life. I'm trying to be pleasing to God. What am I supposed to do in the midst of all this? And I think there's some confusion about that. Um, and so with that in mind, I'm going to spend, uh, I don't know how long, I haven't mapped it all out yet, but two or three weeks talking about this. And what, what is our role? What, what is our role as Christians in sort of the uh, political portion of our society. Here's something I've noticed, and, and you can tell me if you have noticed this as well. I think right now, currently, not only is politics in the air, but the intersection between faith and politics is in the air. Now, the, faith and politics, you can talk about the separation of church and state and all of that, but they're not completely separate. There is an intersection between faith and politics, and I think, at least my perception, and maybe it's my awareness, it seems to me that that is greater right now than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. I don't believe I've ever seen quite so much um, crossover or interaction between uh, faith and politics as I'm seeing and hearing in the world uh, right now currently. Let me give you some examples of that. Uh, One is, this is the cover of Newsweek magazine April 9th, so I guess this is this is the date the week before it comes out. I think it's right before. So anyway, last week or the week before, uh, that is sort of a, a hip urban Jesus on the cover of Newsweek. Andrew uh, Sullivan, the author, writes, forget the church, follow Jesus. His article isn't about forgetting the church, you know, just forgetting the church. His article is about this, that the, the church has missed it. Organized religion in America today, he says, has missed it in terms of their understanding Uh, of what it means to be a Christian in a political environment. Let me read you a few quotes from his article. Uh, This is towards the beginning of the article. It politicized faith, whether or not, and he is a believer, whether or not you believe, as I do, in Jesus' divinity and resurrection, and the importance of celebrating both on Easter Sunday. uh, Jefferson, he refers to here as Thomas Jefferson. In the beginning of the article, he talks a little bit about some interesting things that Jefferson had to say about uh, Jesus. Jefferson's point is crucially important because it was Jesus' point. What does it matter how strictly you proclaim your belief in various doctrines if you do not live as these doctrines demand? What is politics if not a dangerous temptation towards controlling others rather than reforming oneself? That is a powerful statement. What is politics if not a dangerous temptation toward controlling others rather than reforming oneself? If we return to what Jesus actually asked us to do and to be rather than the unknowable intricacies of what we believe he was, he actually emerges more powerfully and more purely. He goes on uh, and says this, The ability to be faithful in a religious space and reasonable in in a political one has atrophied before our eyes. Towards the end of his article, he says this. I have no concrete idea how Christianity will wrestle free of its current crisis, of its distractions and temptations, and above all, its enmeshment with the things of this world. But I do know it won't happen by even more furious denunciations of others, by focusing on politics rather than prayer, by concerning ourselves with the sex lives and heretical thoughts of others rather than with the constant struggle to liberate ourselves from what keeps us from God. What Jefferson saw in Jesus of Nazareth was utterly compatible with reason and with the future. 
What St. Francis trusted in was the simple, terrifying love of God for creation itself. And that never ends. That article is available online, by the way. I'd encourage you to read it if you'd like, um, if that was at all interesting to you. Sullivan's article is not the only one. He's not the only voice out there in the wilderness saying this stuff right now. I've read two articles in the last three weeks. Uh, In addition to this one, both uh, were, I believe, originally in the Washington Post, but I read them. One was reprinted in the Oregonian and the other in the Eugene Register Guard. I wanted to read you a couple quotes from one of those. This is a guy named Michael Gerson. This is so interesting to me. He says this, Religion in the 2012 presidential election is the topic that will launch a thousand doctoral theses. The pre-Vatican II Catholic candidate, Rick Santorum, has, largely, uh, has risen largely on the support of evangelicals who, before Vatican II, often regarded the Pope as the Antichrist. The former Mormon bishop, Mitt Romney, arguably won Ohio and Michigan, and thus probably the nomination, and we know since then, yes, he has won the nomination. I mean, I, I guess he has because of Catholic support. And a significant portion of the Republican electorate regards a president who has affirmed the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ as a closet Muslim. If anybody's confused about religion and politics today, you have reason to be, right? Why would you not be confused when there's things like that? Uh, Last quote I'll read you. Gerson makes what I believe is the most profound and telling statement of all the articles I read. He says this, There... And there here is, he's talking about candidates, various candidates, who have taken uh, a faith message and leveraged it to, uh, to use as their own political platform. So they've used a, a point of faith to, as leverage for their political viewpoint. Their view of Christian social, social ethics is strangely identical to the most uncompromising anti-government ideology involving the systematic subordination of a rich tradition of social justice to a narrow political agenda. Uh, Let me just say, I'm not necessarily endorsing or agreeing with any of those statements. I find them all to be very interesting. I bring them up simply two reasons. One is to, to illustrate uh, there, there, is, there is a lot of noise about the intersection of faith and, faith and politics happening in the world today. And, and, and then second, I bring them up to say this, that I, I really believe, along with Sullivan, that Christianity is in crisis. That, frankly, the church in America today does not know who it is, who we are. And that... Um, we, we really don't know what our role is in the culture we live in. I realize that's a fairly big statement to make. But, but with that, let me just, if I could say, ever so humbly, I hope, I hope tonight and in the next couple of weeks to be able to, to share some things that I, I believe... Uh, are important to that understanding of what is our role as people of faith, as Christians, as followers of Jesus. What is our role in our in our culture today, and and how do we respond to what we see in the world around us in terms of the advancement of the kingdom of God? That's that's my goal and my intent. So pray with me if you would, Lord. Um, I ask the, the help of your Spirit to be true to your word.
to share things which are uh, biblical and to share things which are meaningful and applicable to our lives. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart one more time that we might know you better. In your name we pray. Amen. I want to uh, I'm to do something that I again don't normally do. I'm going to go back and review a lot of what I said in my first message a few weeks ago. A couple reasons. One, it was three weeks ago. If you're like me, you forgot what happened three weeks ago. Uh, two, um, I know some of us weren't here, and I, I, I told you at the time, I've been thinking, I've been reading a lot, so I was, I was really focused on this, and I lost track of the calendar, believe it or not. I, I really forgot where we were in terms of the, the arrival of Palm Sunday and Easter, so I, I, I wasn't happy about the gap in the middle of the series. So I'm going to go back tonight for those reasons, review uh, a, a lot of what I said the first week. So for those of you who are here, I apologize. And then uh, I'm going to take a, a step further and talk about one, one subject tonight before we, we get done. So I'll try to go as fast. I talk fast. I, I hope you can understand me. Uh, my goal is to do a 45-minute sermon in 30 minutes. Uh, you know, I hope that works out. I don't know. Um, so in, in review, here, here's uh, the title of the first message, and, and maybe the title of the whole series, I don't know, is Kingdoms in Conflict. I shared that that is not a title original to me. I didn't make that up. It's actually the title of a book by Chuck Colson, uh, Kingdoms in Conflict, that deals with this very issue. I, I highly recommend that book. It w- was written um, not too long after Colson's release from prison. I don't remember exactly when. So some of his illustrations in terms of the, the, sort of the political landscape are a little bit dated, but uh, his, his point in terms of the advancement of the kingdom of God is, is very applicable and very meaningful today. So I, I recommend that. I think Colson was very uniquely qualified to write this book in that, well, he was a politician. He was a politician. Well, hello, young man. How are you tonight? Uh, he was a very powerful politician. And, and I believe he was a person who, uh, as, as a man of power, believed he could do anything he wanted. You ever encountered, or maybe in a movie scene, somebody like that, a person who thinks their power is unlimited. Colson was part of a small group of men that worked uh, with and for Richard Nixon, and I really believe they thought they could do whatever they wanted. And they were wrong. Uh, they, they, they couldn't do whatever they wanted. They, they were um, caught and arrested and convicted, and Charles Colson, among others, spent time in prison for his crimes. And so he went from a position, and this is what qualifies him to write this, of having great power to no power. So very few people in, in life, I think, ever fall that far, have that understanding. And he did. Uh, in prison, Colson was converted to Christ. He met Jesus. And upon leaving prison, founded Prison Fellowship, a ministry to prisoners, and has spent the remainder of his life from that day to this in Christian ministry in service of the kingdom of God. So I, I really think he's very, very qualified to address these issues. So that's where I got the title, Kings in Conflict. Um, let's look at a few of the primary texts we looked at that night. The first was Matthew 20. This is a situation where uh, an argument has arisen among the disciples. James and John have come to Jesus along with their mom, which I love that, uh, I think mom was probably in charge. I don't know. But uh, James and John come, and they, they, they say to Jesus, hey, we want the best seats in the house. We want to be on your right and left. We want to be the guys that kind of, you know, at the top of the ladder. This is Jesus' response. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. In the world, he says, power is over. People take power 
over you, not so with you. Here, this is a huge distinction. Not so with you. In my kingdom, Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. They must take the lowest place on the totem pole. And then I think uh, what is the key to the passage, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Just as Jesus did, so do we. Our goal, our heart, our purpose is to imitate Jesus, to do what he did, and to exercise uh, outrageous acts of love and service to others. That's how his kingdom will be advanced. And then we also looked at a couple passages from uh, Matthew and John during the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, you, you know the story. Um, they come to arrest Jesus. Peter, I love Peter. Peter's a macho man. He's a tough guy. And Peter is not only a, a tough guy, he's an activist. He's not going to stand around and, and watch things go by. He's going to get something done. Peter's emotional. Uh, and sometimes his emotions get the better of him. And in this particular case, and here, I, you know, I just, I, I think... Peter, it's, it's all coming down. This is it. This is, this is the last hurrah. They're coming to get Jesus. We've got to do something now. So first blood. He's gonna, he, Peter's going to strike the first blow, pulls his sword, lops off the ear of one of the servants of the priests that came to arrest Jesus. Uh, and again, Jesus responds by saying, put your sword back in its place. Uh, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. Jesus is not saying, I can't do this. I could do this. Do you not think I can call on my Father and He at once will dispose more than 12 legions of angels? Uh, I don't know how much a legion was. I looked it up and nobody knows for sure. It's somewhere between 5,500 and 6,000. So do the math. What would 6,000 times 12 be? Somebody tell me that's smart. 72,000. Thank you, the math doctor says. 72,000 angels we could, we could kick your butt, um, but we're not going to do that. That's not the way my kingdom works, Jesus says. And then uh, in John's uh, writing of the, the same scene here, Jesus says, point blank, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. We would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But, but that's not how my kingdom works. My, my kingdom is different than that. The disciples and and really everyone, all of those who had chosen to follow Jesus at this point, were of the mind, they, they believed with all their heart that Jesus was going to establish a political kingdom on earth. That's why Peter drew the sword. They, they thought that Jesus would overthrow the evil, wicked Roman government, that he would set himself up as king, and that he would reestablish God's people in their proper place of power and authority. They were wrong. They were wrong. And, and, and so here we are, here we are some 2,000 years later, and some of the followers of Jesus are still looking for that same thing to happen. Some of the followers of Jesus are still looking for Jesus to set up a political kingdom on earth. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. 
In a moment of crisis, let me say this, and you'll all identify. In a moment of crisis, it's easy to get the sword. When your back is against the wall, it's easy to vie for power and do what you can do to take a position of authority over other people. And when I talk about the sword, I'm not talking about just violence or war. I'm really talking about anything related to that whole power over mentality, okay? So that can be manipulation, coercion. It could be any number of things, some of which are not even all that bad, but it's that power over mentality. It's easy to trust in that. Jesus was very, very clear over and over and over again that that's not how his kingdom works and that that's not how his kingdom would advance, that his kingdom is not about cutting somebody's ear off. His kingdom, in fact, if you remember the rest of the story, is about healing that ear, even even if, as was the case, that person has declared themselves your enemy. Jesus says, even your, my kingdom is about healing and extending love and grace to even my enemies. All through Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, there are Two kingdoms describe the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. And they are opposed to each other. They are opposites. They are kingdoms in conflict. They're fighting against one another. And, and what we have to understand, and, and this, is, this is sort of the summary of the whole message tonight, what we have to understand is that we can't adopt the kingdom of the world for godly uh, or right principles. We can't adopt the ways of the kingdom of the world in order to accomplish the, the purposes of the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. We can't do that. To advance the kingdom of God, the only way we can advance the kingdom of God is to do what Jesus did. To pick up our cross. To serve others. To love as He loved. That's the only way His kingdom will be advanced. It won't be advanced by taking power over other people. The kingdom of the world works by establishing power over other people. Um, The kingdom of the world is enforced through the threat of punishment if you do not yield to that power. We have laws in our country, right? And if you don't obey the laws, what happens? You get in trouble. If you run a red light, you get a ticket. You didn't obey the law, now you will be punished for that. And that sucks when that happens. I hate that. But that's the way it works, and it's good. It's good. I hate it only because, you know, you have to pay the money. It's right. It's a good thing to happen. Um, But that's what happens. Um, The kingdom of the world is concerned primarily with behavior. The, The focus of that power over and the threat of punishment is to get you to do the right thing. Drive slower. Don't run the red light or you will pay for that. The kingdom of the world really isn't concerned about the condition of your heart or why you're doing what you're doing, simply the behavior. Kingdom of God... The kingdom, the kingdom of God works by taking a place of power under it. Power in the kingdom of God is derived by putting yourself in a place of servitude of others, by, by going beneath them. And it's enforced not, not by coercion or threat of punishment, but it's, it's enforced by extravagant love, by deeds of love. And, and you all know how that works. When, you, when someone does something so amazingly loving to you, you, you just you know you, you just yield to that person it's a complete reversal and the kingdom of god is is not nearly so interested now be, be, there is a behavioral component but it's not primarily concerned with your behavior but with the transformation of your heart 
And, and as I said before, a transformed heart is, is, is something that a law can never accomplish. You know, you've heard it said that you can't legislate morality. Well, I'll take that, you know, a step further and say you certainly can't legislate a transformed heart. You pass all the laws in the world. It doesn't change your heart. The only thing that can transform our heart is the love of God. So a couple last little things on the uh, review. We're still in review, and uh, and then I'll move on. Um, we understand that God works within the kingdom of the world, that, that, that he uses the kingdom of the world to avoid uh, chaos from breaking out and there being total anarchy. And we read in uh, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, other passages like that, that, that we, we are to cooperate with that. We obey the laws. We pay our taxes. We pray for our leaders. We're instructed to do those kinds of things. But what we need to also understand is that while God works in that kingdom, so does the devil. In fact, 1 John tells us that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world, all of the world, is under the control of the evil one. In the Gospel of John, repeatedly he is called the prince of this world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls him the god of this age. And in Ephesians, Paul calls him the ruler of the kingdom of the air. So the devil has control of this world, and that that rulership, that governance, extends out into and through uh, governments of the world. So all governments have a measure of worldly influence in them. Some are relatively good, some are relatively bad. No matter how good or how bad, there's a measure of worldly influence. We can see that, can't we? Can't you see that? Even in our government, right? You can see that. In, in Luke chapter 4, to further illustrate this, the devil takes Jesus up to a high place, shows him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. Why? Because it's been given to me and I can give it to anybody I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. We know that Jesus doesn't bow. He doesn't worship the devil, but he also doesn't dispute the claim. He doesn't dispute the claim. He understands that this is true. The devil holds at least you know, some of the cards in how power and authority in the kingdom of the world is distributed. Jesus did not come into this world to fine-tune the kingdom of the world. He didn't come here to adjust the picture on the kingdom of the world. Jesus came into a power over world to establish a power underworld. He brought about a total reversal in the way things that work. This is a radical departure from the way that everything else is done. The kingdom of God is directly opposed. It's exactly the opposite of the kingdom of this world. As kingdom of God people, we're told... We are to be in, but not of, this world. We're in the world. We live in it. We function in it day to day. We're not of it. It's not our home. We pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. We pledge allegiance to the kingdom of God. We, we, cannot, we cannot compromise a, a unique and distinct calling that's on our lives as kingdom of God people for the sake of a kingdom of the world agenda. Or as Michael Gerson put it, the systematic subordination of a rich tradition of social justice to a narrow political agenda. 
We are aliens and foreigners, Peter says, in this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. There is a fight to fight. But the fight we fight is not the fight of this world. And our enemies are not flesh and blood. So, our enemies are not the liberals, not the conservatives. Our enemies are not the Democrats or the Republicans or the liberals or the, the, what are those guys called? Libertarians. Sorry if you're a libertarian. You're not my enemy, though. Um, Our enemies are not abortionists or feminists or gay rights activists. Our, Our enemy is the prince of the power of the air, and the task at hand is to tear down his kingdom by imitating Jesus and doing amazing acts of love in his name to the world around us. I want to recommend a second book. I I have it in my bag, but I forgot to bring it up with me. Um, I recommended Colson's book, but uh, Rich Nathan is a vineyard pastor in Columbus, Ohio, and about 10 years ago, Rich wrote a book called Who is My Enemy? And uh, some of you that have been around will remember when it first came out, most of our small groups went through it and read it together. But Who is My Enemy deals also with this very subject. And again, it's a very, very good book in terms of understanding our role among uh, the people of culture today. So Who is My Enemy by Rich Nathan is the second book I'll recommend to you. Okay, so now I'm going to take just 10 more minutes and, and give you a, a little uh, further thing to think about tonight, if I haven't confused you enough already. Um, so here's my topic for tonight. My topic tonight is A Tale of Two Disciples. Tale of two, and those are actual uh, drawings. I don't know who drew those or if they were there, but I looked up, I Googled these two guys, and those are the pictures I got, so th- that's them. Uh, you'll know who they are in a second. Start with Matthew 10 and, and the 12 disciples. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, the son of De- Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Twelve disciples. I want to focus on two of them tonight. Matthew, the tax collector, Simon the zealot. According to the artist, that guy on the left there the, the, uh, with the handsome face, that's Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, the angry one on the right is Simon the zealot. So, um, pretty well documented that the disciples of Jesus were a fairly diverse group, okay? We know that. Some of them were blue-collar, some of them were white-collar. Some of them were relatively wealthy, some of them were not so wealthy. Some of them had uh, some high social standing. Others probably uh, were stinky and didn't have such high social standing. Um, I never smelled a fisherman who wasn't stinky, to be honest. Um, just sort of stays with you. Uh, so, so, so they were diverse. Um, but these two guys... Matthew, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot, were as diverse as diverse can be. Uh, there, there were four subsects of Judaism in that day. Pharisees and Sadducees, who we hear talked about fairly regularly in church. Uh, the Essenes, who you don't hear talked about as much because they were kind of weird. They lived in caves in the desert. And then the fourth group were the zealots. Zealots were sort of the left wing. Uh, they were the radicals, they were subversive, they were anti-government, they hated the Roman government, and at times used less than um, kosher means, if I can say that, to uh, undermine and overthrow the Roman government. 
if there's anybody the zealots hated more than, you know, Roman officials, it would be tax collectors. Why? Because tax collectors were the guardians of the status quo. They were very conservative, wanted everything to say that don't make any waves. Because why? My livelihood depends upon it. The tax collectors were in the employment of the Roman government. While they were actually Jews, they worked for the Romans and collected taxes from their own people, sometimes cheating their own people for their own gain. There were no laws determining how much they could collect. So basically the way it worked for Matthew is, I'll take as much money from you as I can. I owe the Roman government this much, and I get to keep the rest. So very often uh, they would cheat, the gov- cheat their friends and neighbors to get more money for themselves. Very, very uh, far on one side of the spectrum, status quo, uh, Simon the Zealot, very far on the other side of the spectrum. Um, Never, never, not one time in the course of his ministry did Jesus ever say which way was better than the other way. He never commented on what either of them did or represented or had been a part of. Never said anything about it. To me, his silence speaks volumes. Jesus basically is saying here what we've already looked at tonight. My kingdom is not of this world. Your way and your way don't mean anything to me because that's not how I do this. Now, I have to think that Matthew and Simon had some interesting conversations. I would love to hear that. You ever, anybody of you have friends that have different political persuasion than you and your friends, and you have some of those kinds of conversations? i got to think these guys had some interesting conversations. I'm sure... I'm sure they did not agree on much. But here's the thing. When Jesus is your common Lord and Savior, all the other stuff that you disagree on isn't that important. It just doesn't matter that much. This is what matters that way. We can disagree on those things. We, look, I, I tried to think of an analogy. We don't have categories to really describe how far apart these guys were. We don't. I could, say, uh, I could say Matthew was like uh, a Rush Limbaugh and Simon was you know, like a Barack Obama. That doesn't come close to describing the gap between them. It's, 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 another, it's, it's another universe beyond that. And yet, Jesus called them both. Jesus reached out to them both. And with the kingdom of God in common, the differences that they had about how the kingdom of the world should be run just were insignificant. They didn't matter. I I should be able to tell you that I voted for Rush Limbaugh. He's not on the ballot, but I like him so much. I just think he's so wise. You jest, you laugh. I should be able to tell you I voted for Limbaugh or, or that I voted for Barack Obama or Ralph Nader or Ron Paul or, or a- anybody else out there in the political spectrum and it should not cause you to question my faith. All right? Um, you might want to ask at that point, and I think this is a fair question, how, how do you square your political views with the kingdom of God? How do you square that? And I think 
you can have a conversation about that. And I think you have a right to be able to explain how that works. And I, I frankly, enjoy those kinds of conversations. I like getting into those, those kinds of talks. Um, but that is a different issue because that really is about how my philosophy of the kingdom of the world should work. It, it doesn't affect my faith or my belief in the kingdom of God or my position or place in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a, a, a unique a unique kingdom that Jesus has called uh, us into regardless of our perspective on how the kingdom of the world should be run. The kingdom of the world is constructed, it's built upon the flesh. The flesh says what? What's in it for me? The flesh looks out for number one. I want what I can get out of this deal. That's what the flesh always wants. The kingdom of God is built on the spirit which does what? Crucifies the flesh, puts it to death. The The kingdom of God doesn't say what's in it for me. The kingdom of God says what's in it for you. What can I do? What can I do to serve you? How, how can I lift you up? How, how, how can I give you more value in the world today? Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. How can I affirm your worth? That's what the kingdom of God asks. The kingdom of the world is tribal. It's, it's, it's tribal. It's, a, it's, the, you know, it's an extension of the flesh, not just what's in it for me, but what's in it for my group. What, what, do, what do we get? Because our way is the right way, Right? Right? Is that not what the kingdom of the world says? My way, our way, is the right way. Everybody else's way is the wrong way. You know, I'll give you an example of that. I think most of the people who have died fighting wars have died believing they were fighting for a cause worth dying for. I, you know, I was thinking about that today, and I wondered, it, that may not be true of the most recent war we fought in this country, but by and large, most people that have died in wars have died believing that they died fighting for something that was worth fighting for. The kingdom of God is not tribal, it's universal. The kingdom of God says that every single person has value, infinite worth. Every single person is my creation. Every single person, all all of God's people are of value to me. And it wants to express the worth that those people all have by loving them in word and deed. That's what the kingdom of God says. It's normal for the kingdom of the world to view the body bags of the people that fought on our side as being more valuable than the body bags of the people that fought on the other side. The kingdom of God says my heart breaks at the tragedy for every one of those lost lives, regardless of whose side they fought on. The kingdom of the world seeks to demonize our enemies and rally against them. We want to have power against our enemies. The kingdom of God says you don't have any enemies that are flesh and blood. And in fact, the ones who think that they're your enemies are the ones that I call you first to serve and to love. Right? Is that not what God's kingdom says? The kingdom of the world... I lied two kingdoms uh, function in two 
very different realms. The kingdom of the world functions in the realm of, of crime and punishment. We know that. Um, disobedience to the law. The kingdom of God functions in the realm of sin. Sin is what separates us from God. And when I sin, it's harmful to me and to others. And so it asks a different question, and, and it functions in a different realm. Those two things are very different. Some things are a sin and not a crime. Some things are a crime and not a sin. They, I think that's where some of the confusion comes in in Christians today. I think we want to make everything that's a sin a crime. In the uh, last century, if you would have violated the Jim Crow laws, you would have been committing a crime, but you would not have been committing a sin. You would have, in fact, been doing a a righteous thing and standing up for what's right in, in the world. Today, things like lust and greed and gluttony are sins, but they're not crimes. And in fact... Most of us would say we don't want the government telling us what to do in those areas because we want to have the freedom to eat what we want and watch what we want and make money however we want. Now, I I think we should be thankful for living in the place that we live in the world today and and being in a version of the kingdom of the world that says we have a vote, we have a say-so. We can contribute to how that power is distributed and what is, a, what is a crime in this country, what laws should be passed, we thank God for that because yeah, that's a humanizing thing, it's a dignifying thing to, to have that. Uh, we should be thankful for those who, who have sacrificed that we can have that opinion but we can't confuse those two things because they're two different things. They're not the same and they ask two different questions and I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Two questions. One question you answer with your vote, right? That's the kingdom of the world question. Uh, you, the, you, what is your opinion on how the kingdom of the world should operate? That, that's a political question. How, how should, what should be a crime in our nation? What, what, how should law and order be enforced? What, what sort of things uh, should be passed and shouldn't be passed? That's a, that's a good, reasonable question. But it's a kingdom of the world question. The second question is, what should I do? What do I? What am I called to do to advance the kingdom of God? And that's a radically, radically different question with a radically, radically different answer. What is sin in this situation, and how should that be dealt with so that relationship with God can be restored and reconciliation and forgiveness can happen between people? How do how how do we reproduce Christ-like love in in the lives of one another and the world around us. That's the kingdom of God question. Matthew and Simon would have disagreed radically on, on the first question, but been in total agreement on the second question. Does any of this make sense? Okay. Um, I'll close with an example. I'll just give you an example of that, and then, and then we'll wrap up. One person in the kingdom of God might say that The, the church should really have a Christ-like love for gay people in the world today. That we should embrace them, that we should love them, that we should support them and walk with them through uh, their, their challenges and the pain that they experience in life in the same way that we would a gossiper or a glutton or anybody else, any other sinner. But that same person might also say, but I believe what's best for law and order is that we not allow gay people to have the right to legal marriage. 
And those things would not necessarily be a contradiction. You could believe both of those things at the same time. Another person in the kingdom of God might say that homosexuality is a sin in the Bible, that it's missing the mark, that it's not God's ideal, it's not God's intent, and that once again, along with greed and lust and other sins, we should be helping one another move away from those things. And so you can see how the answer to that second question is really the same. But that person might say, you know, I think what's best for you know law and order in the political world is that they should be allowed to be legally married. So again, the kingdom of God question, you come to the same conclusion. The kingdom of the world question, you come to very different conclusions. And yet, that's okay. Matthew and Simon would have, I believe, answered that question politically very differently. But in terms of the kingdom of God, they both would have said we need to love one another. What they have in common is this, that we all are sinners saved by grace in in need of the forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration of a loving Savior. That in that position we all walk together with one another through our pain and our suffering and our sin and the challenges of this life. And we all together become agents of God's transformational love. Very different, very different conclusions. Two different things. But not necessarily, you know, in conflict with one another. So let's stand. I apologize. I do want to pray tonight. Um, here, here's what we'll do. Uh, Jess, can you come up? Are you around? Would you just play something sweet? Can you do that? You, you can do that. He's, he, can, he can play something sweet with his eyes closed. Um, I want to pray for anyone who's been uh, a victim of... Um, misunderstanding if, if you've been judged by Christians who maybe meant well but just didn't understand and uh, for various things in your life whatever they were I want to pray for you I also want to pray for you if you've been in a place where maybe your opinions politically were not the same as other people around you and maybe you've been criticized for that and I'll say I know I have as somebody who loves the Lord God with my whole heart, I've been criticized for my political viewpoints. So if, if you've been judged by well-meaning Christians, that's been hurtful. Or if you've been misunderstood and criticized, I just want to pray for you. So if, if as we close with this last song, if our ministry team would make their way to the front, if you would like prayer, we don't have a lot of time, so just don't hesitate. Just come on up and let us pray for you now.